Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories include a long and eventful walk to freedom, an airman becoming a member of a select and unwanted club, and a trumpeter's escape from Dunkirk. We begin with this story from Tom Shute. Morning, gents. I've been inspired by previous episodes to dig out my grandpa's memoirs. He was convinced by my dad to commit what memories he could to paper. Leslie Shute was born in Bradford in 1917, moved to Leeds as a young child, and was given his call-up papers in early 1940, ending up as a signaller in the West Yorkshire Regiment, the 121st Royal Artillery Regiment. After a long spell of training, which included stealing bacon from the officers' mess, they were shipped out via Liverpool to Basra in Iraq before being transported off to Mosul. They spent Christmas 1941 in Mosul, roasting goats and sheep, and remained in Iraq until spring 1942, when they were ordered towards Benghazi. Les was tasked with driving trucks through the desert, along the Euphrates, into Syria, then Palestine, Haifa, across the Sinai and into Europe, through Cairo and up the coastal road, to meet Rommel in the desert, around June 1942. He writes happily of these times, driving through golden sunshine and amazing historic cities, picking ripe oranges off the trees and swimming in lakes in Iraq in the baking sun, a world away from growing up in the inner city slums of Leeds and Bradford. Les states that he'd never been fitter or healthier than in those months leading up to June 1942. He talked of swapping rations with traders in the streets of Cairo, tins of bully beef for fresh roast tomatoes. One of the lads had a bottle of Worcestershire sauce, and Les noted it was the last truly good meal he'd have for a long, long time. They headed along the coast road to the front at Mersa True. Meanwhile, all the other British troops were heading the other way towards Alamein. Mersa True was a smoking pile of rubble, with German, Italian and English graffiti scrawled all over whatever was left standing. The column moved on, but soon became stuck in a wadi. The officers decided to bed down for the evening, only for the unit to be rudely awakened by rounds fired into the side of the troop vans from German units on top of the ridge. And that was that. Transported to the front and straight into the bag. 
According to the service records, Les was registered as captured on the 7th of July, 1942. They were marched westwards into Syria, loaded onto trucks and finally ended up in Benghazi. A lot of guys were taken ill with bad food and poor water. Les notes the water tasted burnt and there are lots of gaps in the memoir at this point. There's a memory of drinking salted water in a makeshift field hospital, waking up in the cargo hold of an Italian ship and then in a hospital in Caserta on the edge of Naples. There are snapshot memories of the hospital, the flickering lights of Vesuvius visible with the Italian blackout at night, plus the story of a poor Indian soldier shot by the Italian guards in the hospital for speaking in Punjabi. After a few weeks in hospital, Les was transferred to a POW camp. He states that camp life was dull, nothing to do, nothing to eat, struggling to find things to burn to brew up tea. That always seemed to be a priority. Rather comically, lots of the blokes in the camp converted to Catholicism as there was a local father who would visit the camp and bring extra bread rations for those in his flock. There was a group of Durham soldiers, ex-miners, who tried to tunnel out of the camp using their tent as cover. The problem was there was too much dirt and nowhere to put it, so it ended up bulging out from the tents when the zip was opened. As with many others in Italian prison camps, Les and co awoke on a morning in early September 43 to find the Italian guards had deserted the camp, with the gates wide open. Strangely, the British officers in charge told everyone to stay put and wait for orders. Two days later, the guards were back, German this time, and the opportunity was missed. The Germans shipped everyone north to the Reich. The train travel was arduous, hemmed in with only one window. Eventually they were unloaded at Innsbruck in Austria. Winter had arrived, and Les writes of another snapshot memory of Russian soldiers being forced out to work in the snow, even with legs and arms missing, some being pulled on sledges. Finally, they were deposited at a work camp in the Erzebirger Mountains between Dresden and Chemnitz. The German overseer was a genial bloke called Herpner, who they called Cheesy due to his cheese-cutter hat. Les also notes that some of his working party were identified as Jewish, two South African soldiers who were taken away to a special Jewish camp. That's what they were told by the guards. They had no idea at the time what that really meant. By early 1945, there were persistent rumours that all POWs would be executed should Germany lose the war. And with work details constantly moving from one place to another, an idea emerged that this was to confuse the records of who was where, making it easier for the Germans to disappear people. Finally, into the spring of 45, and everyone knew the war was coming to a head. Attached to a work detail near Görlitz, on the southwestern border with Poland, Les could hear the boom of the Russian guns from the front line. He writes to the German guards trying to cosy up to Western POWs, as there was a belief this would act as a protection from any Russian vengeance that may be coming. The POWs were marched further into Germany, just ahead of the Russian advance, hearing the guns and seeing German deserters hanging from lampposts. This was the beginning of May 1945. They were marching through a village when the column was strafed by two Russian fighter planes. Everyone scattered, and Les and his mate Bill legged it up the side of the valley. They nipped into a hay barn only for the Russian fighter planes to blow the roof off and send them scarpering further up the valley and away. They kept on running, even when the planes left, and Les 
never saw anyone else from his marching column again, just himself and his mate Bill. They stuck to high ground and headed west, never dropping into the valleys, as it allowed them to keep an eye on those coming from all sides. He writes of the forests and valleys, heaving with refugees. Whenever a tank column or troop lorry passed, they'd hide, regardless of who it may be. They passed through one town that was like a ghost town, not a soul in sight, and only dead animals in the road, and lots of blood, with white bedsheets hanging from the windows. Les and Bill were taken in by some elderly Germans who fed them and gave them somewhere to sleep. When Les and Bill left, the Germans asked them to write a note to show to the Russians that they had been kind to prisoners of war. Next, they nicked tricycles and set off down the road, now teeming with refugees. Twice they were stopped by Russian troop columns and frisked for watches and other things to loot. Les said the Russians were collecting wristwatches, Young, Asiatic faces with watches from wrist to elbow on both arms, who seemed friendly enough, though the lieutenants were more European-looking, stern and best avoided. Les was told to say, Tvarish Englesi, and be on his way. Somewhat incredibly, Les writes of coming back past the old mill where he was first put to work in Germany, and finding Cheesy, the old carpenter foreman, still there with his family. They were able to have another meal, and a kip, and stay there for a few days. They could hear distinctive Russian machine gun fire all night long, constant volleys of fire from the wooded areas, and they came across Russian soldiers foraging for all sorts to make homemade wine. They managed to stay at the old mill for a couple of days before a Dutchman turned up in a flatbed truck and took the lot of them on the autobahn, saying he would go as far as the US lines. Loaded up with Les, Bill, Cheesy and his bike and a few others, they set off down the autobahn through a dense forest before being stopped at a Russian roadblock before the American lines. Only Bill and Les were allowed through. The Germans had to stay, including Cheesy, and even the Dutchman didn't make it through. Les never saw any of them again. And that was that. Back across to the American lines. First thing he did was ask the GI on sentry duty, for a fag. It must have been the best smoke ever. On the flight home, he was allowed to sit in the bomb-aimer's seat in a repurposed Lancaster. He remembers watching England come into view and the descent, touching down on home soil. I can't imagine what that felt like. Still, I'm sure he'll agree, it makes one hell of a story. Best wishes, Tom Shute. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Our next story is from Tudor Rees. Hi chaps. My father David Rees served as an observer in Fairy Swordfish, open cockpit aircraft which were obsolete at the outbreak of war. On finishing school he applied for a commission in the Royal Navy as an observer and soon found himself, late in 1941, striding through the gates of HMS St Vincent in Gosport to learn basic seamanship and how to behave like a sailor. Then it was on to the actual observer's course. Subjects included weapons, navigation, wireless and signals, and finally, many months later, flying. An observer needed to be well equipped with the tools of his trade. These were numerous, cumbersome, but most definitely essential. They would include a Bigsworth board for plotting, a lamp for night work, an astro compass for star readings, a magnetic compass, navigation computers, rather like circular slide rules, not electronic, and several other bits and pieces. On board the swordfish itself, the observer also handled the air-to-surface vessel radar, which was not too effective in its early days, but improved significantly later in the war. Sitting in the back of an open cockpit, with all this kit, it required something of a miracle to get the job done. Remember also that everything in those days was done manually, with achingly numb hands from the cold wind. Eventually, in January 1943, David and his pilot and telegraphist air gunner the TAG, received their posting to 825 Naval Air Squadron aboard HMS Furious. The air wing of Furious comprised nine swordfish from 825 Squadron, nine ferry albacores from 822, and nine seafires from 801 Squadron. By March 1943, HMS Furious formed part of the home fleet and was involved in numerous prominent sorties including the Norwegian campaign and later Operation Husky, the Allied invasion of Sicily. Throughout these operations, 825 Swordfish carried out anti-submarine sweeps in pairs, searching for the tell-tale wake of a periscope. At one point, David Rees was on an anti-submarine patrol with another Swordfish, when at the end of the patrol the two aircraft returned to look for Mother, 
furious, at the pre-brief location. To their dismay, it was apparent that they had both been given duff information at their briefing. Furious was nowhere to be seen. Both aircraft continued to search, and just when their fuel was about to expire, they found the ship, but the weary pilot misjudged the landing, and the aircraft tipped over the side of the deck into the sea. The crew managed to scramble aboard the dinghy, and then had to wait a few hours before they were picked up. Following a rest, David was soon back on operations, this time with a new pilot, because his previous pilot was still recovering from injuries sustained in the crash. In August 1943, six Sea Hurricanes joined 825 Squadron, indicating that operations from an escort carrier were imminent. Escort carriers were generally built in the USA, and arrived complete with luxuries previously unknown to British sailors. Hopes were high, and sure enough the ship, HMS Vindex, was brand new as an aircraft carrier. This was good news. Not quite such good news was that it had been converted from a merchant hull in Swan Hunter's yard on Tyneside and had none of the luxuries. A shakedown period followed, allowing the ship and air crews to familiarise themselves before becoming operational again. Do remember that the average age of aircrew at this time was in the region of 19 to 20 years old and they carried so much responsibility. On the 14th of January 1944, Lieutenant David Rees experienced his second ditching, once again over the side of the ship. This time he was quickly picked up, returned to the ship and back on operations. Even for these fit young men, immersion in the cold sea quickly sapped their strength and they had to be assisted in the rescue. On top of this there was a great deal of tension and frustration due to faulty switches causing weapons failures. It was most galling to risk your neck in an attack and then to have the weapon fail. As if that was not frustrating enough, David then suffered his third crash into the sea. On this occasion, his swordfish and the one following it off the deck both had engine failure, later established as fuel contaminated with water. For David, it was considered three ditchings were enough and he was posted to 783 Squadron as an instructor. It also meant Lieutenant David Rees had become a fully-fledged member of the Goldfish Club, with three awards in total. He was lucky to survive not only the crash on each occasion, but also the immersion in cold seas, where body temperature soon drops below the critical 35 degrees. Keep the good works going. Brilliant podcast. Cheers, Tudor Rees. Our next story comes from Paul Wiskin. My late father, Zjadwav Novak, was due to start at university in Bigosht, Poland, on the 1st of September, 1939. Not an auspicious date. Bigosht was considered a Volkdeutsch area, and he was conscripted into the Wehrmacht. I've been unable to find out much about his war. I wish I could discover more. I do know that he eventually joined the exiled Polish army in Britain, but I only found out at his funeral that he had surrendered in Normandy in 1944. Apparently, unwilling to serve as a soldier for the Wehrmacht, he used to swallow tobacco to induce illness, but nonetheless ended up in a stomach battalion in Normandy. He finished the war as part of the Polish army and British service in Scotland. After the war, he met and married a Latvian refugee who had fled the Soviets. Thus, with a father-in-law who escaped Hitler and a mother-in-law who fled Stalin, I am one of the few folks who can thank those two tyrants for the eventual production of my wife. That was from Paul Wiskin. Our final story this week is from Malcolm Kelly. My father, 
William Thomas Kelly, always known as Pat, was born in Sheffield five days after the Great War ended. His father left the scene quickly and mum moved her two children to Barnsley. When the Depression began, Pat was sent to a Catholic orphanage as a destitute child. On turning 15 and already showing signs of musical talent, he joined the Rifle Brigade as a band boy. The brigade became the family Pat had never had, and he flourished. As a member of the band of the Rifle Brigade, he accompanied the 2nd Battalion to Malta for a two-year tour in the mid-1930s. Pat was mad for sport, running track, playing and refereeing hockey. When the 1st Battalion joined the 30th Infantry Brigade and was sent to defend Calais in May 1940, Bandsman Kelly went with them as a stretcher-bearer. Over the coming days, my dad and his mates were under constant bombing and shelling, and the men he considered his family were killed and maimed around him. Some launches and small vessels were able to take a limited number of wounded out, and Dad helped with that. By May the 26th, for Sunday, those who were left began to work themselves on to the end of the East Mole at the harbour. Mortar fire had cut a large hole in the wooden pilings, so anyone coming down after that was forced to swim the gap. The water was freezing. Eventually there were 47 men from different units there, led by a Royal Marine captain who somehow found coffee for everyone to have a slurp. At 2am the following morning, the firelight from the town revealed HMS Gulzar, a converted yacht, coming into the harbour. At the wheel was QM Jack Woodhead, who eased the vessel to the portion of the mole below the gap, from where a couple of men headed for town. They came back quickly, under fire, jumped aboard, and Gulzar headed for the open sea. At the end of the mole, a signaller was trying to raise her by lamp, but they went by. At the last moment, someone caught the light and Woodhead brought the ship around, pulled to the dock and all 47 men were saved. Woodhead would go on to win a DSM at Dunkirk. Band units were taken out of combat units for the rest of the war. My dad, who I learned later was shell-shocked, went back to his music career. He was so talented, Nella Hall chose him as one of the first NCOs to enter the famous school and they quickly put him into the Golden Trumpets. When Princess Elizabeth married Philip Mountbatten in 1947, Dad was front and centre with the trumpets at Westminster Abbey. Unfortunately, the trauma of Calais and subsequent health problems kept Pat Kelly from finishing at Nella. He continued his career as a bandsman and band leader, which saw him at a forward mass unit in Korea when the Chinese attacked on November 25, 1950. He was also a big band leader on the side until 1959 when he took the pension and retired. To honour my dad, his story, and that of the other 46 men on the mole, has been woven into my novel, Sprog. Thanks to Malcolm Kelly for that. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com we have ways podcast at gmail.com or you could leave it on the members site under the family stories tab a reminder that's patreon.com slash we have ways bye for now <laughs>